Welcome to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, Greg and I answer listeners' questions about how and why to warm up, some practical ways to quantify training volume and assess fatigue, how to tell if you're a non-responder to creatine, and much more. Plus, as an added bonus, Greg gives a very detailed explanation of how to make the perfect homemade ice cream. Remember, if you want your questions answered on a future episode, be sure to submit those questions using one of the links in the episode description. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is another Q&A episode. I'm your host, Eric Trexler, and I'm joined by temporary guest host, Greg Knuckles. Thanks for having me back on. Of course. So the first question, getting right to business, is a question that comes up all the time when it comes to looking at research on hypertrophy and just practical programming. By the way, the question comes from Chuck, the one-eyed dog. What is the best way to calculate volume for hypertrophy training? Hard sets regardless of reps? Reps times weight times sets? Question mark? Yeah, so um, this has been a topic of a fair amount of debate. Um, So the traditional way to calculate volume um, for normalizing programs within the literature has been to use the volume load, which is sets times reps times weight. Uh, Multiply those together. It gives you your tonnage, um, you know, nice happy number in pounds and kilograms. It feels very scientific because you're calculating something. Um, And that's what was used pretty much exclusively in the literature to normalize training programs or and to equate them for decades, like at least two or three decades. And as best I can tell, someone just started doing that and everyone else followed suit. Um, <laughs> there wasn't a rigorous process leading up to that to make sure that that was actually the best way to equate training volume, uh, assuming you're interested in you know, something that will theoretically equate outcomes as well. That was just a convention, and so that's what everyone did. Um, Tons of people still calculate their tonnage as if it actually means something. Uh, However, when we look at the research, we see a whole, whole lot of instances where tonnage is different. Um, The number of sets performed is the same, and hypertrophy is the same. So most of those studies are comparing kind of normal, moderate rep, moderate load training to low load training. So for example, doing sets of 8 to 10 reps per set with about 70-75% of one rep max to doing uh, sets of, you know, 20 to 35 reps per set with below 50% one rep max. In Virtually all of the studies that have used that kind of experimental setup and have equated the number of sets performed, you see very, very similar hypertrophy, but much higher volume loads with the low load training condition. So it seems like the number of hard sets is a better way to equate training if you're interested in hypertrophy outcomes. Um, So another thing I'll just generally note is that even if you kind of hew to the traditionalist idea of the classic hypertrophy range of 8 to 12 reps per set, even there, like, 
volume loads are going to be way higher if you're doing sets of 12 versus sets of 8. It's probably going to be 30-40% higher, give or take. So, like, ultimately, I don't know what you are measuring besides tonnage. Like, it gives you something to calculate, but is it worth calculating something that doesn't ultimately mean anything uh, with regards to the training outcomes you're interested in? So, just to nuance this a little bit, um, when you equate the number of hard sets pretty close to failure or to failure that are performed, seems like hypertrophy is pretty similar, but there's... Um, there's ends to that range. So for really, really low rep stuff, so here probably thinking triples and below, um, you, you probably need to do more sets to get similar hypertrophic outcomes to higher rep training. And if the load gets below about 30% of one rep max, it seems like hypertrophy on a per set basis starts dropping off as well. Uh, there was a recent study testing that where they compared training at, I believe, 20, 40, 60, and 80% of one rep max. They found similar hypertrophy with loads between 40 and 80% of one rep max, but quite a bit less growth with 20% one rep max. So, so there are edges to that range, but probably for sets of between, I don't know, maybe four and 40 or 50 reps, it seems like if you're doing the same number of sets, Hypertrophy on a per set basis is pretty similar. If you get too heavy, so probably, you know, 85 to 90-ish percent plus, like heavy doubles and triples, hypertrophy drops off. If you get below 30% one rep max, I don't know why you ever would, unless you're a subject in one of these studies. But <laughs> uh, but if that happens, probably a little bit lower hypertrophy per set. But through the range where most people train in, hard set seems to be the way to go. So that is if we're interested in hypertrophy. I think... Can I make a quick comment on that? Yeah, go you for it. You mentioned like you don't know why somebody would go below 30. When the first... When there's first a lot of like lively discussion about the study showing like 30% 1RM mm -hmm. resulting in a decent amount of hypertrophy. Even with that, I'm like... People were acting like it was some kind of hack. Like, oh, sweet, you can only lift with 30%. I'm like, who wants to do that, man? Like, yeah, that's not a fun way to train at all. I mean, I could see doing it for like curls or tricep extensions or something. If you're just going, if you're kind of masochistic and you're going for a ridiculous pump and to be in a reasonable amount of localized agony for a very long period of time, sure. <laughs> But doing that for like squats or deadlifts, fuck that. I, I was at a conference once and somebody was sharing their results on one of those types of studies. And they mentioned that doing bicep curls with 30% one rep max, uh, one of their participants developed rhabdomyolysis <laughs> doing bicep curls. What? And I, I believe they actually ended up publishing a case report on that subject. That's wild. But like, can you imagine how intense that set of curls was man that's a more intense set of curls than i have personally ever experienced yeah me too um so the one thing i will say in favor of volume load is that it it's probably pretty good if you're trying to predict the metabolic cost of training so one thing that we know is Caloric expenditure scales with work performed, so work here in, in the physics sense. And 
I mean, unless you have a lab setup, the best proxy you're probably going to get for that is volume load. So I think that that worrying about volume load, if you're specifically trying to improve work capacity, so just purely the ability to do work in a session and recover between sets, I think volume load's probably a pretty useful metric then. Um, or if for whatever reason you're trying to maximize caloric expenditure during a training session, uh, volume load's probably a pretty decent metric then. But for just purely interest in hypertrophy, uh, number of hard sets seems to be the way to go for, for most, most circumstances. Now, before I jumped in with my anecdote, it sounded like you were going to transition to talking about strength. You mentioned that that was kind of your take when it comes to hypertrophy. So both of the two things I've said to this point, there's research backing it. The strength thing is just kind of my hot take. Uh, I think if you're interested in equating volume for strength outcomes, it's still the number of hard sets uh, with the caveat that it needs to be at a relatively high intensity, so about 75% one rep max or above, and they need to be high quality, which is kind of a subjective thing, but I think we've probably all experienced it where, you know, maybe you're doing a bunch of sets of three and the first four or five are good, and then the sixth set, you still get all the reps, but you just feel like shit. You can tell rep quality is not good. You're not snappy anymore. You go for rep seven. Maybe you still grind them out, but it sucks even harder. I kind of think that those first five sets are, are the ones that are netting you the strength results. That's just my personal feeling. I don't have research to support that. Um, but, but I think high quality, high intensity sets are the main thing you're interested in from a strength perspective. Just my opinion. So with strength, you mentioned that there was kind of a sub- subjective quality aspect. W- would that make it fair to say that there's both an art and a science to lifting? One could say that. That would be a good idea for an ebook. I agree. Or maybe a pair of ebooks. Uh, okay, moving on to the next question. For you, Eric, um, from the asker fitness for teens underscore insta, uh, <laughs> seeing this username and then the question stereotypes on point I love it yeah. uh, how does marijuana affect recovery from strength and hypertrophy training when it's either smoked, eaten, or vaped yeah so er- Eric, does this podcast support vape nation are we <laughs> are we a pro are we a pro vape nation anti-dutch nation podcast is Vape Nation, is that exactly what it sounds like, or is that like a real thing? It's like a dumb old H3H3 video. Okay, yeah, I'm not I'm not, uh, not privy to that information. It's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> you know, it, it, as long as it's uh, adults making health-conscious decisions about what they want to do with their vaping habits. But maybe not fitness for teens underscore Insta? <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> So yeah, that, that's a the disclaimer here. Don't do drugs, okay? <laughs> uh, if you do drugs, you're gonna have a bad time. However, I will answer the question. Um, you might be surprised to find there are not a tremendous number of randomized controlled studies looking at resistance training recovery following vaping, eating, and smoking marijuana. We just we just aren't <laughs> there yet. 
However, there is a decent amount of research on marijuana in general, so there's some useful information to be shared here. Now, one thing with marijuana that's interesting is uh, there is some observational research indicating that people who tend to chronically smoke a lot of marijuana tend to have more visceral adipose fat um, and insulin resistance of the adipose tissue. Um, it's observational, so take it or leave it. Uh, there is a review by Sansone and Sansone. Um, I'm going to speculate that they're either married or related. But uh, in that review, they noted uh, there, there's been a decent amount of marijuana research on non-athletic populations. And what they found is that, generally speaking, marijuana does seem to affect uh, metabolism. And it seems to increase body weight in people who, are, who have a low body weight initially. But in people who are normal weight or overweight at the beginning of these types of interventions, there's not a huge effect on body weight. So what you're telling me is this is that one weird trick for hard gainers. That's not what I'm telling you. That's it's not what I said. <laughs> That's not. I'm not telling you to initiate your dreamer bulk with a bunch of marijuana. Um, but in any case, so there's some conflicting information about whether or not it contributes to... Uh, deleterious effects on metabolism. Um, there are some acute studies showing a, a, an acute increase in metabolic rate while you're actually partaking. Um, but I don't know if it's worth doing much with that. I, I don't think a lot of people are smoking marijuana for any kind of perceived metabolic benefit. If you are, don't hold your breath on that. <laughs> uh, now, there... there there are a few like review papers talking about marijuana and how it relates to athletics. And the reason for that is because marijuana is a banned substance on, on drug testing uh, panels. So that's actually changed recently. Oh, is it? Yeah. So um, I think this changed three or four years ago. Okay. Marijuana is banned for in-competition testing. It okay. is not banned for out-of-contest testing for most major organizations. So I, Including I think, WADA? I think it may still be for the NCAA. Mm -hmm. I am almost certain that WADA allows athletes to use marijuana outside of competition, but not if it's in their system during competition. Interesting. But in any case, uh, if you look back at the research on failed drug tests, um, historically speaking, marijuana actually tends to be usually in the top three or four substances that, that people get popped with, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I didn't expect it to be that high. Um, but th there have been some studies looking at whether or not there could potentially be an ergogenic value to marijuana uh, because people said, well, if it's banned in sport, let's see if it actually helps with sport. Mm -hmm. And it's not ergogenic, uh, which probably shouldn't be a big surprise. The uh, Aside from the potential for long-term lung issues from smoking, um, generally speaking, when you look at performance outcomes, it either hinders performance, especially with things that are taxing on the cardiovascular system, or just has no effect. And there have been some studies, I think some of the individual studies mentioned like... <laughs> A few of the people just didn't want to work out. <laughs> so, well, that that's believable as hell. Yeah, I think they had to the, they had to note that as subject dropout because they're like, yeah, they just didn't. <laughs> they, they, they weren't feeling it, <laughs> which is kind of funny. No, so so true story. Um, I have partaken in marijuana exactly four times in my life, and 
I generally like the idea of it. Um, like, I'm a fairly chill guy, and I like to lean into that. Like, if I could take something that doesn't seem to be all that harmful, especially if, you know, it's consumed as an edible and not smoked, you know, I like the idea of being even more chill than I am now, you know, to wind down in the evening, etc. All, every time I've used it, I fall asleep immediately. <laughs> it takes, you know, probably 10, 20 minutes to feel anything. I feel better, chill, relaxed for about five minutes and then instantly asleep. Yeah. So I would be one of the people who, who would not be working out in this study. Yeah. Because you would be unable to wake me up. And that is a good point because even in these papers, usually they'll note like acutely, there's definitely not an ergogenic effect. Um, there's no reason to believe it would be helpful in terms of muscle gain or strength gains in any way, mechanistically speaking. But they have noted, uh, obviously, people subjectively report better sleep. Um, they've they've argued that there might be some benefit when it comes to dealing with performance anxiety or anxiety in general in athletes, um, and and even uh, potentially minor minor pain relief from injury. Um, uh, there's a lot of anecdote in the literature. Obviously, it's kind of it's it's not easy to study marijuana uh, given different legal uh challenges but but they have argued okay there might be some kind of uh indirect performance related benefits um that might justify making it banned for sports specifically mm -hmm. but i mean usually when you look at those drug lists any kind of illicit street drug they're, they're pretty much gonna just put on the list anyway yeah so given that this asker is fitness 14s underscore insta it's possibly worth noting that um, there is some research suggesting that regular use of marijuana during the teenage years is associated with a permanent decrease in IQ, which is maybe something that someone would want to be concerned about. Like, I assume that's not the case if, you know, you spark up a J once a month or something. But if you're someone who regularly uses marijuana... Uh, that seems to be what goes down. That is troubling. Troubling indeed. <laughs> um, so, for, for personal reasons? No, or? I'm just worried about the general population. You know? That's, uh, you've, that's very kind of you. You've got these horrible people legalizing marijuana all over the place, which is just crippling the family unit and family values that I tend to promote. So, As you know. So one thing to note is of the research I've seen on the states that have legalized marijuana, the data that exist tend to indicate that rates of teen marijuana usage either don't change or possibly decrease. I think it's one of those things where like once something's no longer a forbidden fruit, yeah. a bunch of shithead teenagers are no, are no longer as interested in it. So Yeah. I mean, that, that's pretty believable. Yeah. Um, but I did want to have a couple notes about CBD, uh, cause that seems to be a very popular topic. Uh, I saw a, a headline that caught my eye in a review by an author named Carvalho. Exposure to CBD is associated with a reduction in mammalian testes size, uh, fertilization rates, plasma concentrations of hypothalamic pituitary and gonadal hormones. Um, 
Moreover, chronic doses have been uh, associated with impaired sexual behavior in mice. It looks like there's a small body of literature indicating that chronic exposure to CBD um, is pretty not great for the mammalian uh, reproductive system in males. This was something I wasn't aware of. Obviously, you would wait for some human trials to come out on the subject with, you know, reasonable exposure dosages. Uh, but in, in any case, I, I found that to be uh, remarkably troubling indeed. Um, something to keep in mind and to keep an eye on for future literature that might relate to humans. Do we know, is there any research looking at whether those changes are reversible or not? Not that I'm aware of. Fair enough. I'm not certain. Um, it's just one of those, I mean, with CBD, there's just like, there, it's everywhere. And there's mm -hmm. so much anecdote, but comparatively a lot less research. Yeah. When you look at the research, uh, it has been approved as a drug for, I believe, a specific type of seizure. Um, there's some human research looking at anxiety that seems to be promising, but not entirely conclusive yet. Uh, but another thing, um, something that I kind of speculated about but hadn't found research on until recently, uh, there's a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2019 by Bon Miller. Um, Apparently, there's some pretty serious quality control issues with CBD products. Not, not to be mistaken for Von Miller. Correct. This is a, a very different but equally cool person, I assume. Von Miller seems cool, right? He seems cool as hell. Are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. I, well, you know, I just wanted to make sure. Hell yeah. You never know if there's somebody that, like, you're the last person to hear that they're actually, like, terrible. And you're like, oh, cool guy. And then you get in trouble if i know that someone seems terrible i'm probably not going to casually mention them on this podcast <laughs> fair enough this this is something we've run into before it may shock you to learn eric i'm not intentionally trying to torpedo the podcast that i'm <laughs> a temporary guest co-host on i know i know <laughs> Okay, but quality control of CBD. In previous episodes, I was like, you know what? I just don't trust it. But that was based on kind of a gut feeling. Mm -hmm. uh, I, found, I finally found a study about it. They looked at 84 products from 31 companies. These are CBD supplement products. Um, about 43% of them were underlabeled. About 26 were overlabeled. And about 31% were accurately labeled. And I think they built in about a 10% buffer there so mm -hmm. if it was within plus or minus 10 of labeling i think that's uh what they settled with um but also they detected uh, a measurable amount of thc in 18 of the 84 samples um which is something that you know like i said on previous episodes if if you're subject to like a full wada panel or any kind of drug testing for your job or your sport uh in which low levels of thc might uh, fail you for a drug test. I, I think that's a really important consideration. Yeah, I mean, especially if it's, especially if it's something where they're doing sensitive testing and there's a zero tolerance policy. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Yeah, but yeah. So uh, to wrap things up, when it comes to marijuana, uh, follow the law. Be healthy. Be safe, kids. Especially all you fitness teens out there. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's really no reason to believe that there's a direct ergogenic effect. There's no reason to believe that there would be any uh, benefit when it comes to muscle growth. The only stretch you could make would be just the uh, the extra 
little bit of sleep quality, maybe. Well, which and, is that, mostly and that it's the number one tip for hard gainers. You heard it here first, <laughs> folks. Absolutely not. Okay, let's <laughs> uh, let, let's get to some <laughs> let's get to some more mainstream fitness. Here, here's a question from Barry Maguire Fitness. Isn't that a movie? Jerry Maguire. Yeah, that was Jerry Maguire. <laughs> I'm so stupid. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, we we both have bad and different problems with names. Yeah. <laughs> you you are unable to read and pronounce a name that you, that you read. Correct. And I'm unable to remember any name ever. Yeah. Like there are. So here's a completely true story. Um, so after graduation, my wife and I moved out to California. Um, we lived in a house with five other people. One of the guys we lived with, his name was Rob and Rob's girlfriend also lived there. I probably spent seven to eight hours a day with me and Rob's girlfriend being the only two people (laughs) home (laughs) because she was unemployed and I worked from home. Um, and so like I have had untold hours of conversation with this person but when i first met her she introduced herself i forgot her name it reached the point that it was completely impolite to ask her name again and so to this day i have no idea what her name was she will forever be rob's girlfriend yeah no there's definitely a point where it's far too late yeah you cannot ask (laughs) Um, but if you're listening along i mean we try to make the show pretty practical and applicable if you're listening along and you find yourself in a situation like Greg's, here's a, a little tip that you can use. What you do is you try to find a way to be in a position where you would introduce them to somebody else or introduce someone else to them and then just seem preoccupied during the actual introduction. Mm-hmm. So at the time where you would say, hey, this is whatever her name is, you just somehow be preoccupied and it'll look like you're absent-minded, but it won't look like you've not known their name for eight months. No, I, I mean, that that's what I tend, that's the play I try to make. Yeah. But it's, it's like, this is a housemate and we didn't have that much company. So like, what could I do? You oh, know? You, you gotta try to find a way, man. You know, I never, I don't think she ever noticed. So... Did the, you ever find out her name? No. I have no idea to this day. The thing I do is if if anyone's met me in real life, they know that I refer to almost everyone as bro. Like that's my gender neutral term, either bro or buddy or dude. Um, I don't think that's how gender neutral works. It, you know, I lived in California for six months. I can claim dude as gender neutral. I have lived in gyms for like 16 years. I can claim bro is gender neutral. I'll give you dude, but bro's tough. Okay. Bro's like saying man. See, I think that's gender neutral too. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm... I'll, I'll refer to my wife as man and dude and bro. Like, Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so I just lean into that. And, and if you refer to everyone as one of those terms, people don't notice that you don't know their name in particular. It just becomes like a part of how you interact with people. Mm-hmm. See, Let's... I just I just refer to people directly as you. <laughs> or if I'm talking about them, I refer to them as an entity. <laughs> and that way, 
you could virtually never offend a person by suggesting that they are in fact some type of entity. Sure. And that's a fact. <laughs> okay, let's uh let, let's get back to fitness. All right. So Barry Maguire Fitness. He asked, How important are warm ups? What constitutes an effective warm up? And what are some warm up misconceptions? Yeah, so in general, uh, how important is a warm up? Um, it's fairly important to do at least something. The exception to that rule is Keith McHoney uh, or McHoney. I think it's McHoney. Um, very, very good 66 kilo weightlifter in the USAPL. Until very recently, he held, I believe, the squat, deadlift, and total record in that weight class. And a quirk about him, which I learned from talking to other members of the U.S.'s IPF Worlds team, is he doesn't warm up. Like, he'll do one warm-up set at like 90% of his opener for every lift, and that's all the warming up he does. So, you know, if he's going to open 500 in a squat... He just waits around until he's about to go up, hits a single at 450, and then goes and opens with 500. The, the reason I found out about this is apparently he got in trouble with whoever went as the national team's coach that year um, when he was a lifter at Worlds. Because the coach wanted everyone to do at least some sort of warm-up, and Keith was like, nah, dude, like... That's that's not how I do this. Uh, and the coach was like, no, you have to warm up. And they apparently got in a big fight about it. Um, but, but Keith had a had a string going for a while where I think for seven consecutive meets, he set the world record for the total and like rebroke his own record again. So like obviously worked for him. Uh, as far as I'm aware, he doesn't have any chronic injuries he's dealing with. So... If you're Keith McHoney, you don't have to warm up. I think we can all accept that by this point. For for everyone else, you probably should. Um, so what are you trying to accomplish with a warm-up? One is just to generally raise your core temperature and also to raise the temperature within the muscles that you're going to be using for the workout. Uh, that accomplishes two main things. So the enzymes that you use to produce energy, and really any enzyme, uh, has an optimal temperature at which it functions best. And for the enzymes you use to produce ATP, their optimal temperature is, if memory serves, right around 100 degrees Fahrenheit or about 38.5 degrees Celsius, uh, normal body temperature being 98.6 slash 37. So you want to get the temperature up in the muscles a little bit just so the enzymes you're going to be using to produce energy actually can produce energy at the fastest clip possible. Uh, another thing that happens is your muscles have viscoelastic properties. And so the visco there refers to viscosity. And if you've ever tried to, say, pour cold honey versus like microwave honey and then pour it, you can see the difference that temperature makes on viscosity. And apparently, just a few degrees change in muscle temperature can affect those viscous properties and thus the elastic properties of muscle um, to help its contractile function work a little bit better. So warming up is very literal. One of the primary things you're trying to do is just to raise the temperature in the muscle that you're going to do. 
In terms of what constitutes an effective warm-up, um, beyond just doing enough general activity to raise the muscle temperature, the biggest thing you want to do is movement prep or a dynamic warm-up for whatever exercise you're about to do. If you're a team sport athlete, that may be relatively elaborate because you know, you're know you about to be doing a bunch of different stuff. You're going to run, you're going to jump, you're going to cut, you're going to move in different planes, you're going to pivot. If you're a lifter, you know, you're probably going to do a relatively basic exercise moving the bar in one plane. So I tend to think you don't need a very elaborate warm-up, and your movement prep is just, you know, doing lightweight for the exact exercise you're about to do. So, you know, if it's squat, start with the bar, do the bar for 15, 20 reps, go up a little bit, do 10, 15 reps, whatever. Just get some blood flowing lubricate the joints a little bit. I tend to think that's about all most people probably need to do. Um, However, I think a fair amount of an effective warm-up for an individual depends on that individual and depends on feel. So, for example, I would never claim that everyone should do lacrosse ball rolling on their hips, their piriformis, their glute med before they squat and deadlift. There's no evidence that it's effective. Most of the research looking at the effects of foam rolling or self-myofascial release on subsequent performance finds that it doesn't really do much, like nothing interesting on average. So I wouldn't say, oh, everyone needs to do this. But I know for me personally, it makes a big difference. Um, So I do it. And and I think that warm-ups should probably be tailored in that fashion. So... If as you start building up to your main work sets on whatever movement you're starting with, if you're frequently finding that something just feels bad or feels off, you know, try different dynamic stretches, try different, maybe even static stretches, try foam rolling particular muscles, see if something just subjectively makes you feel better. If it does, cool, add that to your warmup. Um... But there's very few things that everyone has to do beyond just very basic movement prep. I find it interesting that you mentioned that foam rolling and lacrosse ball type work helps for you. Because I also subjectively feel quite a difference when when I do those types of things before a big squat or a deadlift workout. And uh, I've heard you talk about the research on self-myofascial release before. And I would have assumed that you thought it was all completely BS. I, I had no idea that you actually did some of that yourself. Yeah, so, okay, I'm going to come in with a sweltering hot, decidedly not evidence-based take. Here we go. Actually, I guess it kind of is. It, it's So the principle that absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, if you look at the foam rolling literature, the vast majority of what gets rolled It's either quads or hamstrings. Like, that's pretty much what every study looks at. I haven't seen a study that looks at getting a lacrosse ball there in your piriformis or glute med. For me personally, foam rolling my quads and hamstrings doesn't do shit. Like, my personal experience very much matches the research there. But for me and a a fair amount of people I know, getting getting in your, your lateral hip area makes a big difference. So, I mean it very well could just be one of those things where, you know, maybe that type of stuff does make a difference, but there just hasn't been research looking at the right muscles yet. 
Um, so yeah, someone's probably going to crucify me for that, but whatever. It's well deserved. If not for that, you, <laughs> you, you you've done plenty. Sure. Um, but yeah, so in general, basic movement prep and just doing light reps with whatever exercise you're going to do. I think that's plenty of warm up for most people. Um, but y- yeah, if the movement doesn't feel good, just play around with other things that may feel good for you personally. Um, I think the biggest misconception, just building off of everything I just said, is that anything beyond a basic movement prep is necessary for everyone. Um, there are a lot of people who absolutely swear by foam rolling. They say, oh, you have to roll every muscle in your body before you even think about touching a barbell. That's dumb. What's what's the thing that was popular like three or four years ago? The, the fucking voodoo floss or whatever. That was like a thing for a while. People saying everyone has to do that. No research on that. Like, no, everyone doesn't have to do that. Um, a lot of like traditional strength coaches are still into like a very thorough dynamic warm up before anyone even considers touching a barbell. I also think that's completely overkill. Like, I think it makes a ton of sense for sports practice, not so much for the weight room. Um, but yeah, I mean, beyond just basic movement prep, doing lightweight with the exercise you're about to do, I don't think there's anything that everyone just needs to do beyond that. So next question for Eric from JVDM94 is any incline chest work worth it? Does it increase the size of your upper chest? That is an interesting question from the perspective of a bodybuilder. I, I think if you ask the typical bodybuilder, um, how do you feel about only doing flat bench the rest of your life? They would probably be quite concerned that their overall chest development would be hindered by that. Um, there's a few ways to look at answering this question. Um, first, there's the research looking at bench press at different angles and, and how that affects uh, the activation of different areas of, of the pectoral muscles. And generally speaking, the flat bench press is pretty damn good at, at broadly activating the pec musculature. There are some studies showing that if you play with the angle, you can preferentially get a little bit extra activation in certain areas of the muscle. So there is some evidence to suggest that doing some incline pressing might give you a little bit more preferential activation of the upper chest area. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have additional hypertrophy. Um, there, there's, you know, EMG activity does not necessarily translate over time to hypertrophy. Um, but there is a study not, not on incline uh, bench press, but I, I think I think it's informative when it comes to variation and exercise in general. Um, There's a study a few years back where they looked at leg quad hypertrophy using squat only or a program that had a variety of exercises. So they had squat, deadlift, uh, leg press, and lunges. And what they found was the overall amount of hypertrophy in the quads globally was similar between the groups. But the group that did a variety of exercises... Um, they had more uniform growth across the quadriceps. So um, when they, they looked at all the different quad muscles individually and saw, even though it was the same relative amount of growth in general, it was more uniform uh, looking at the various components of the quads. 
And so I take a somewhat similar approach when it comes to training the upper body musculature. And, and just one thing to note about that study is the group doing a variety of exercises was also doing, one of them was leg press or not leg press was deadlift. I mean, yeah. which one would very much assume on a set per set basis does not train your quads as hard as squats. And just because range of motion is slightly smaller as well, I would assume lunges probably don't train your quads quite as hard as squats do either. So if anything, that study kind of stacked the balance in favor of squats, if anything, and still found better uniformity of hypertrophy with the variety of exercises, which I think, if anything, makes it even more striking. Yeah. And so there's that aspect of it. Also, so when I think of my chest volume throughout the week, um, I I borrowed uh, some training principles from the other Eric, Eric Helms, Eric Two, smaller font, Eric. <laughs> um, so Helms, you know, he got he kind of planted the idea in my head. He was saying he was training like five days a week or something, and and they're basically five full body sessions, and he was dividing up his volume across i'm paraphrasing but something along those lines a lot of full body work throughout the week and so i've been doing something similar so i'm probably averaging three or four chest workouts a week but they're low volume per session but with my chest work aside from looking at details of muscle activation and stuff like that what i find is if, if i were doing all of that volume on flat bench press my wrists, elbows, and shoulders would probably be pretty unhappy with me just based on my personal training experience. Mm -hmm. When I vary that a little bit, so right now I have a flat bench workout, I've got an incline unilateral dumbbell bench workout, and then I've got a flat dumbbell workout. And I find that the variety uh, of allowing joints to just slightly different angles on those three exercises, I, I think it does help me out in the long term of just not overloading the joint at a very specific angle over and over and over mm -hmm. so for me even aside from preferentially targeting one area of the muscle or another um just keeping my joints feeling healthy and, and fresh it has been a really nice a really nice uh, benefit of of messing with some of those pressing angles so my short answer would be I would say for me, you might, you probably disagree with this based on a discussion we've had in the past, but I would say my best chest builder, if I had to pick one exercise forever, I would choose the flat barbell press. I know previously you uh, completely disparaged the flat barbell press on an old episode. Did I? It was like your first go-to for overrated exercises. Well, I, because I think it's overrated doesn't mean I think it's bad. I Fair mean, it, it, it is the avatar of exercises that everyone <laughs> thinks about when they think resistance exercise. Yeah. Like, yeah. how much you bench, bro? That's well, it's, it's like your study, right? You ask people, like, how many years have you been lifting? Six. How many have you been benching? Exactly six. Like, yeah, yeah. The second you start lifting, you're benching. Yeah. So, I mean, something can still be a good exercise and be tremendously overrated. Like, those... Yeah that's not logically inconsistent well i'm not a not a nuanced thinker so i, I try to <laughs> boil things down to the important parts but but what i'm getting at is if you just benched from here on out and you developed a really strong bench you did it with decent volume frequency intensity you would develop a strong big well-developed chest 
not disputing that. No one's going to look at your physique and say, oh, crap, that guy's been skipping out on the incline presses. Because uh, I think the flat bench press does activate the pec pretty globally and pretty effectively. But I do think there is benefit of including that incline chest work, especially if you're a bodybuilder or you know, extremely comprehensive balanced chest development is particularly important to you. Not to mention the fact that incline chest work usually uh, also gives some nice stimulation to the anterior deltoid as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the... I like the point you brought up about just generally keeping joints happier. I also cycle through lifts pretty frequently for very much the same reason. I think it's I think it's not quite as extreme, but it's a similar principle to um, endurance athletes doing cross training. So like a runner who just runs year round generally has a greater risk of um, like chronic muscle or joint issues than someone who, you know, does most of their training running, but also mixes some biking and swimming in as well. Still getting the aerobic work, but also not loading the exact same motor pattern over and over and over again. It's obviously much more subtle, like comparing bench press to incline press, like versus running versus cycling. Like it's, it's a smaller difference, but I think the same principle applies and I've, I've noticed the same thing. Like if I do, especially like comp deadlifts all the time, fucks me up. Uh, same thing for bench and squat, but to a, to a lesser degree, but just by keeping a rotation of exercises in, I feel so much better. Yeah. Also tip of the hat to Helms. I've been really enjoying this type of training. If anyone's interested in learning more about that, Eric talked about it in a pretty fair amount of depth on Jeff Nippert's channel a while back. Um, if you want to check out that video. Cool. All right. So Greg, we got a question from Arminius. The question, how is the concept of functional overreaching applicable in a hypertrophy training block? And how often would you advise to use this technique? To build onto that, how would you best reap the benefits of the supercompensation following a successful overreaching period? So up to about six months ago, I would have said, uh, how, how relevant is the concept of functional overreaching to hypertrophy? I would have said not at all. And I think I would have had pretty decent reason for saying that. Uh, you train, you stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Within 48 to 72 hours, it seems like muscle protein synthesis goes back to baseline and it kind of stays at baseline until you train again. There's going to be some fluctuations based on how recently you've eaten a protein-containing meal with a high amount of leucine, but you, you, for the most part, you get that spike around the workout, goes back to baseline a few hours later, or a couple days later, and that seems to be the general process. So I would have said, you know, if you're going to do functional overreaching and, you know, maybe then deload and you're hoping for a big rebound in hypertrophy, I would have said that's dumb. Uh, <laughs> like a couple days after the last workout of your functional overreaching block, muscle protein synthesis is back to baseline. You're, you're not going to get anything extra out of that. Uh, however, there was a recent study by Bjornsson and colleagues which did show that um, functional overreaching 
and kind of a, a subsequent overshoot and hypertrophy is a thing. Um, but I still don't know how relevant it is to most people. So in this study, the subjects were untrained and the training protocol was kind of contrived. So they had two blocks of five days of training separated by 10 weeks or not 10 weeks by 10 days. So they trained for five days. They did seven training sessions during those five days. So the first three days they trained once per day. The last two days they trained twice per day. These were low intensity, very high rep sessions, bunch of sets taken to failure. Um, this may have been the study that you talked about where someone had rhabdo. Uh, I think if memory serves when I reviewed the study for mass, there there was either one or two subjects that they said they had to drop because their creatine kinase levels were getting completely out of control. Um, and if you look at even like group level, the... This Bjornsson study? Yeah. I was... I was uh this ain't it. So there, there oh. must be a lot of rhabdo happening. Out I mean, there. I, I could be misremembering it, but I, I do remember that the initial spike in creatine kinase, even on the group level was outrageous. That's plausible. I mean, yeah. people get rhabdo sure. all over. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so um, very, very challenging training for completely untrained folks. Five days of training, 10 days of no training, uh, another five days of training, just running back the training program from the first five days to three days with training to failure once per day two train two two days of training to failure twice per day and then they took various measures of hypertrophy uh, after the last session three days after the end of the study 10 days after the end of the study and I don't think they took hypertrophy measures 20 days after but they did take strength measures um, but as far as hypertrophy goes, they found that fiber hypertrophy, so when they took a biopsy and looked at the cross-sectional area of type 1 and type 2 muscle fibers, it was the highest 10 days post-training. So it was higher at 10 days after the last workout than 3 days after the last workout. And the difference was, was actually reasonably large. Um, so at least on a fiber level, there did seem to be a delayed hypertrophic response and kind of a... a rebound and overshoot in fiber size after an overreaching block of training for untrained folks this was absolutely overtraining or overreaching um however for someone who is interested in the appearance of hypertrophy i don't know how relevant it is because they also um took ultrasound scans to get whole muscle cross-sectional area and that was basically unchanged for the vastus lateralis and the rectus femoris from uh, three days post-training to 10 days post-training. So they saw an increase in fiber size, but they didn't see an increase in whole muscle volume. Um, it very well could have been a situation where three days post-training, there was a fair amount of edema. Uh, and then by 10 days post-training, the actual amount of muscle tissue itself had increased, but edema had gone down. So muscles themselves didn't actually look that much bigger but yeah on a fiber level you know seemed like functional overreaching and then subsequent delayed hypertrophy was a thing whole muscle level not much going on so i think we can say that the concept is possible 
but I don't, I still don't have much confidence in it because one, the training programs were kind of over the top, uh, not the way most people would approach training. Two, the subjects were untrained. We don't know whether the, this would apply to train lifters or not. And uh, three, like most people who care about hypertrophy want their whole muscles to look big. We're not taking biopsies of ourselves to flex on Insta and say like, well, look at that. My type one fibers got 7% larger. Suck it, haters. You know, like you want your actual muscles themselves to look bigger. So anyway, I think it's possibly a thing. There's not much, there's not, not much research on it. So I, I kind of revert to my original stance of, I don't think it is really all that relevant or useful in the real world. Yeah. So, so I think part of the question was, so if it does exist or if it is useful, like how, how would you best reap the benefits? Would you say just leave it? Don't worry about it. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing with any sort of overreaching, um, cause you see this with strength as well. Like, in some of the research that tests peaking models, what they might do is, you know, have people um, ramp up their training volume for two or three weeks. Performance decreases a little bit during that time span. They deload them. Performance increases and it increases above the level it was prior to the overreaching block. And they're like, oh, look, overreaching is good. We see this overshoot in strength. This is awesome. The problem is that's not testing the counterfactual. So, you know, let's say during those three weeks of overreaching and then subsequent two weeks of tapering, you get a 5% decrease in strength. And then from the lowest point there, you get a 7% increase in strength and you wind up 2% stronger than you were previously. You're not testing the counterfactual of just doing four weeks of normal ass training during which time you may have gotten 2% stronger doing normal ass training, you know? So I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of the concept of functional overreaching in the first place. Um, I think people think it works because you get that performance decrease, you taper, you deload, you bring that fatigue back down. And then over the span of a week or two, you do, you do get a pretty big spike in performance but you get a spike in performance from a depressed level such that it's probably not better or all that much better than it would have been had you not done the overreaching block in the first place. Um, so yeah, I'm, you're basically like masking your performance gains and then removing the mask. Right. So, so so I'm kind of skeptical about whether functional overreaching is, is that useful in the first place for either strength or hypertrophy. Okay. All right, uh, next question for you, Eric, from Beth SKW. Can you tell if you're a creatine non-responder by whether or not you gain weight when you start taking it? For example, if your weight is the same after a week of taking a loading dose. This question comes up a lot. Um, there, there are some research methods to figure this out. You know, we could do a biopsy or we could do magnetic resonance spec- spectroscopy, which is super intense imaging. Uh, those are the ways in a research study that you would try to figure out if somebody's a responder or not. And really what you're looking at there is when we gave them the creatine, 
did their muscle storage of creatine increase in response to that intervention. And it's kind of because the methods of measuring that are invasive or hard to do, like hard to have access to and expensive. um, What's interesting about the non-responder problem is we have some estimates about like what percent of the population might be a non-responder, but from a technical perspective, they're not super robust estimates. I mean, I mean, it's like, it's based on probably, I would say like a handful of papers, none of which had more than like 20 or 30 people. So we've pretty much made like a global estimation <laughs> from like a total of like 60 people. It, it, it's like one of those studies you see where in the title, it says they're providing normative data about something and they have like 40 subjects. <laughs> yeah. God, that drives me crazy. Yeah, so so when people say, like, how many non-responders are there? It's like the current estimates, like, I don't know, 20, 30% of people, maybe. But it's based on some very small sample research and not many. Like, you can do small sample research and do, like, a million samples. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you've got a pretty decent estimate. But not a ton of studies that really directly have, have tried to hit this question head on. Well, and a- another question is, like, especially with small samples, you have to wonder whether the samples you have are biased. Mm-hmm. So... You know, most most people who are going to be signing up for a study taking place in an exercise physiology department somewhere tend to at least be somewhat interested in resistance training. Um, and so, like, people who tend to be interested in resistance training also tend to eat a fair amount of meat. One of the things you noted in your article about creatine that, sh- that we published on the site a while back was that people who eat a fair amount of meat and, you know, particularly non-vegetarians, non-vegans, are likely to have higher base levels of creatine in their muscles and are probably more likely to be non-responders just because they have more creatine to start with. And so, like, the, the studies out there could have an artificially inflated rate of non-response because they may be a bunch of people who are already interested in resistance training and are already eating a bunch of meat and are therefore more likely to be non-responders than the general population would be. So if it's a 20-30% non-response rate in those studies, general population, you know, could be 10%. We don't know. Yeah, and another thing to consider is, you know, sometimes we have a concept of non-response in physiology where it's like, oh, I was born with a defective receptor for that. Yeah, like it it doesn't work for me and it works for other people. When we talk about creatine, it's really a spectrum of responses. Mm-hmm. It's how much does your tissue creatine increase when you change your intake. And so that that's another thing that's really important is that it's not a non-responder responder thing really. It, it's more of to what magnitude do you respond? And some people it's going to be almost nothing. Some people it's going to be a huge change and most people are going to be somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind is that it's not like some kind of thing where you're either going to feel it or you're not. Um, it, it's, it's a spectrum and, and it's, it's hard to tell very easily without some kind of uh, direct measurement like, is this working or not? So in theory, um, weight gain should be a helpful metric. Usually when we do a study uh, with creatine intake, we will see that the creatine group gains more weight than the placebo group. Um, one thing to keep in mind there, though, 
if, if you don't have the benefit of doing this on two groups of people with a big sample, I mean, you're just doing this at your house, right? It's just mm-hmm. you. One thing to keep in mind is if you start creatine loading and because you're drinking, you know, four extra beverages a day, like you might just be waterlogged. <laughs> it's like you, you've just added like an additional like 70 ounces of fluid to your day-to-day fluid intake. So like mm-hmm. at, at first you might just be heavier because you're drinking a ton more. Yeah. So, so that's something that's going to cloud your perception of that kind of N equals one experiment. Um, so you have to keep that in mind. Now, theoretically, as I was saying, we should see an increase in body weight. Um, and that should be due to the fact that when you get on creatine, you increase storage of creatine. If you're a responder, that creatine is osmolytic. So it should draw water into the cell, uh, and increase, increase your total body water. Usually it'll cause a a gain of, you know, one to three pounds or something like that, um, over a short period of time. Now, one of the things that I find interesting is if you look at the research trying to determine like, is all of the fluid storage intracellular? Because a lot of bodybuilders are, in, are interested in that because they're like, I, I don't want any extracellular fluid. I want it all in the muscle cell. The experimental research actually doesn't indicate that it's like exclusively intracellular water storage. And it's not even close to being exclusively intracellular when you look at the experimental data. Mm-hmm. Um, so it looks like the, the intracellular storage probably drives the gain in water weight, uh, the intracellular storage of the creatine. And I think what's happening is that creatine within the cell is osmolytic, does draw water into the cell, but I think your body is a lot smarter than you and it has a... It, 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 kind of naturally self-corrects and makes sure that the relative ratio of intracellular to extracellular fluids are relatively balanced. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of view it almost like when you try to really mess around with sodium and potassium balance and like generally speaking, your body will do a pretty good job correcting it. And then when your body can no longer correct it, you die. Yeah. So y- you would expect the ratio of intracellular water to extracellular cellular storage when you do this kind of creatine loading intuitively you would be like oh well it's all going to get stored in the cell the experimental data don't really support that very well um but if you're a bodybuilder and that makes you concerned just because it's extracellular fluid does not mean it's subcutaneous water storage so i mean extracellular water is a very broad compartment of fluid it does not mean it's going to make you look bloated or watery or less lean um and, and anecdotally the driest, uh, to use a colloquial, colloquial term, the driest, leanest looking bodybuilders you've ever seen on stage. A ton of them took creatine that morning. So it's not something to be concerned about, but it is something I find interesting because you often hear people say all of it's going to get stored in the cell. Um, but the data don't seem to support that in any case, the best tools we have to try to figure out if you're a responder or not, you could try to use weight, but again, weight fluctuates a lot anyway. I mean, day to day, your weight's going to fluctuate a ton. You're going to introduce probably at least 40 to 50 additional ounces of fluid per day when you start loading. So that's going to really distort your judgment of body weight. But if you can look at that trend over a month or so and say, oh, yeah, it looks like I've ticked up, you know, a kilogram and a half, that could be informative. Um, What I usually tell people is to focus more on performance. Um, 
do you know if you want to do loading fine if not if you take it for a month you should be good to go if you look at your training log and say wow the last month seems to be uh, a little bit better than a typical month would be for training um, that might be a good indicator that you are a responder mm-hmm. it could also be an indicator that you have eff- effectively placeboed yourself but if your training log looks good and your training adaptations are good and the creatine's really cheap and the creatine's really safe, I'm not sure that's such a bad thing. And that's my hot take. No, I, I agree. So I actually have a creatine question for you, Eric. Okay. Um, so something I'd never run up against, but since you know everything about creatine, I figured if anyone would know the answer to this, it would be you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of pressure to put on somebody before you ask a question. So I was recently tagged in a thread on Reddit where someone said they didn't want to take creatine because it's too bitter. Um, they said they were taking a creatine monohydrate power or powder. They linked to it. I forget the brand, but it was some like bulk wholesale retailer. Retailer. It, it proclaimed to be plain creatine monohydrate wasn't from like it wasn't a a flavored product from gnc or something like that and i said that shouldn't be bitter like it may not actually be creatine monohydrate creatine monohydrate is supposed to be a chalky generally tasteless powder um and then multiple other people chimed in on the thread most of them saying like yes i take this exact same product it's tasteless and then a handful more people were saying I take this product and it does taste pretty bitter to me. So what I was wondering is like whether it's more likely that whatever company that was just had a bad run of the product and maybe it was tainted with something or whether creatine tasting might work kind of like cilantro or like papaya. So for people who don't know, cilantro generally taste cilantro-y for most people and then for some folks it tastes terrible they think it tastes like soap uh, papaya tastes generally good and papaya-y for most people and then for some people it tastes terrible it tastes like vomit um, so I'm wondering if you know anything about taste perception and creatine and whether there might be some sort of weird taste quirk where some people would perceive it as bitter so I'm not aware of that. Um, this is one of those questions that the best person to ask would be like an industry insider, like mm-hmm. a formulator, you know, somebody who's seen every blend and permutation of creatine and all different sorts of uh, temperatures and pHs and all that. Mm-hmm. At first, I thought you were going to tell me when you st- when you said bitter, I thought you were telling me a horror story and it turned out they gave him caffeine instead and now he's dead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that. No, I mean, that happened. I mean, I've never heard of a manufacturer mislabeling creatine as caffeine, but it, it's quite common that people take caffeine and it seems that they've mixed it up with their other supplements uh, mm-hmm. because every, I think everybody knows caffeine's very bitter on its own. Yeah. Um, so I thought you were going there with that and I was like, God, I hope not. No. Um, one, one thing that comes to mind, it could be just a, a subjective difference in taste. I wonder, so any creatine product in powder form, if you chemically analyze it, I'm pretty sure it's going to be some amount of creatine and some amount of creatinine Mm -hmm. in the product. 
I wonder if it's possible that they had a, a kind of crappy batch that just had a more creatinine in it, maybe. Um, maybe that has more of a bitter flavor profile. That is an absolute random stab in the dark, mm-hmm. um, a complete guess. But I, I have not heard that. But if I took a, if I took an unflavored creatine product and it was bitter, I would be pretty concerned and would almost certainly stop taking it. Yeah, my, my, I mean, we've talked about quality control issues in the supplement industry multiple times on this podcast already. So, so my, my hunch is that it was probably just a bad run of the product. Right. But if there were variations in taste perception, I figured if anyone would know about it, it would be you. I I have never heard that, but I, I might text somebody about that. I think I might know somebody who could tell us something about that. So podcast listeners, if I get any useful information, I will report back. Cool. All right. On to the next question from physio strength NYC. What would you say is the most pragmatic and valid way to objectively measure fatigue? So I'm not actually going to answer this question. Perfect. Uh, well, so I will, but it may not be the answer you're looking for. The most pragmatic and valid way to objectively measure fatigue is probably not the best way to measure fatigue. Um, I say that because there was uh, a meta or not a meta analysis. There was a systematic review um, that came out not not all that long ago. I want to say 2016. Uh, title was Monitoring the Athlete Training Response, colon, Subjective Self-Reported Measures, Trump Commonly Used Objective Measures, colon, A Systematic Review. Uh, and the title kind of gives the game away there. So based on the measures of stress and fatigue that we have, it seems that subjective measures tend to work better than objective measures both for predicting subsequent changes in performance and also for predicting the deleterious things that tend to come with excess fatigue. So here we're talking about increased injury risk, uh, risk of developing infections or illness, which can happen with, with overtraining. So it seems that for the most part, subjective assessments of um, perceived energy, perceived stress, perceived fatigue, perceived mood, um, tend to do a better job of actually assessing athlete fatigue than objective measures do. An exception to that might be if you are purely an aerobic athlete, um, heart rate variability seems to be a pretty decent indicator of fatigue um, in aerobic athletes. Almost all of that research is either looking at aerobic athletes or like heart failure patients. There's, I think, one study on strength athletes, and it was looking at using HRV to kind of like assign training frequency and not so much how well it tracked with some like gold gold standard measure of fatigue, which I'm not really even sure what that would be. Um, so yeah, objective measures, not that good. Subjective measures, pretty good. Um, if you have some sort of sleep tracking device, if you're interested in something objective, that could be pretty decent as well. So a, 
a leading indicator of fatigue and overtraining that often, not always, but often kicks in before you actually start seeing drops in performance is uh, sleep quality and duration start decreasing. So you're really tired, but you can't sleep. You're waking up more frequently in the middle of the night. It takes longer to fall asleep, etc. Generally, if you're tired, you're supposed to be able to sleep like a baby. Um, or, you know, maybe you're just someone who has sleep issues all the time and you still just have sleep issues all the time. But if you generally sleep good and you generally sleep better when you're fatigued and suddenly you're even more fatigued and you're suddenly sleeping worse, that is that is a marker of fatigue and possible overtraining that you can quantify objectively if you have some sort of sleep tracker device. But you can also quantify that subjectively. <laughs> I mean, like most of us know if our sleep quality sucks. Um, or, or at least have a pretty decent idea of it. So, yeah, um, most most pragmatic and valid objective thing you can use HRV if you're an endurance athlete, maybe some sort of of sleep monitor for anyone else. But for the most part, subjective measures of of mood and perceived fatigue and stress um, seem to be more useful for most athletes. All right, question for Eric from, man, I'm going to be the one to fuck up a name now. I'm going to say Mertuluk underscore. Eric, is fasting more effective than simply calorie restriction when it comes to retaining muscle mass whilst losing body fat? Whilst? Hell yeah. That's some, that's some Middle English shit. I am, I'm feeling that. Well, I'm glad that you're feeling it because... I, I hope you give a good answer to this person whomst asked a good question. I'm actually going to abstain. Um, and I think you know why. Look at the question. Dude, you're the one who picked out your questions to answer. No, it, the, in the question, two human beings are tagged. Oh, okay. Greg okay. Knuckles and... I, the other Eric, <laughs> Eric Helms. Listen, nobody cares about Eric Helms. He doesn't know anything about nutrition or training. Why do people keep tagging him in these things? He's a joke. Did you put this fucking question in the outline just to get a dig in at Eric Helms? No. No, actually, I, I like this question. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I was, I was going to say, because that's... That's either really petty or a good bit. I know it's a good bit, but that would have been really fun to play as super petty. All right. So I don't want to go on and on about this because we did, this question was asked before we did our big intermittent fasting episode. So we've kind of touched on it, but if for some reason you're behind and you haven't listened to that episode, um, when we talk about fasting, obviously fasting in general is catabolic. That's how that works, right? Like, the, the general concept of fasting certainly would not be considered something that you would expect to promote or retain muscle mass particularly effectively. But I think this question is referring more to like intermittent fasting strategies, uh, which can take a few different forms. There's the, in the research literature, intermittent fasting usually refers to some kind of alternate day fasting where you might fast for every other day or a couple days a week uh, or just like one day early in the week, one day later in the week. Um, 
quite a few different ways to do that. And what's interesting is with those studies, you know, the, the typical idea based on what we know about protein timing would be if you're fasting two days out of the week, you know, you're going to miss so many opportunities for protein feeding. All of your lean mass is going to fall off. You're going to go super catabolic. Realistically, looking at those interventions, the differences in lean mass aren't, aren't really notable. Um, however, those are in untrained people who, you know, don't have a ton of muscle to start with. They're not doing resistance training. They're pretty sedentary and they're generally overweight or obese. So I don't want to overinterpret those findings. When it comes to people that are resistance trained, we have some research on other, other approaches that are referred to as intermittent fasting, but they're really time restricted fasting. So time restricted feeding, right? Yes. Time restricted feeding. And so with those strategies, you would consume all your calories for the day within a short window. Usually it's like four to eight hours. Um, the studies we see on resistant trained people, there was one study that did show the lean mass gains and the performance gains, the strength gains, uh, were a little bit impaired by the intermittent fast or the uh, time restricted feeding compared to a control diet. But in that study, it was a four hour feeding window and the overall protein intake was pretty low for that day. It was only like one gram per kilogram. Mm -hmm. The control group was eating, I think 1.4, a pretty meaningful difference in protein intake. Uh, Grant Tinsley, who's been on the show has done two studies the last couple years. Um, I think the, the lead author of one was Moro, but, yeah. but Tinsley was on the paper. Uh, but there have been a couple studies coming out using an eight-hour feeding window um, in which the lean mass gains or the retention of lean mass were basically equivalent um, and performance outcomes were basically equivalent. And I, I know definitely in the most recent one where Tinsley was the lead author, one of the a couple of the, the things they were really careful about was making sure there was enough total protein intake each day. I, I think it was about 1.6 grams per kilogram. And they also made sure that the training wasn't performed in the fasted state. And so I, I'm starting to really view protein timing a little bit more liberally than I used to. It looks like if you're training hard, you're doing plenty of resistance training, um, that, that seems to have a really notable impact on how long the anabolic stimulus from a protein feeding lasts. Um, and it also seems to sensitize your muscle to the anabolic response to protein feeding for a very extended period of time. So for up to 24 hours after a lift, you seem to be kind of hypersensitive to the muscle protein synthesis response to a protein feeding. And so, you know, some of these very applied studies are indicating, honestly, even if you're only having, I mean, an eight hour feeding window, you could really only have probably three solid protein feedings in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, to, to consider them really discrete meals. Yeah. Um, it looks like that's pretty sufficient to w within the studies we've seen so far. Now, does that change when we're talking about super extreme deficits and people getting super duper lean? Um, Maybe there could be a slight benefit uh, to muscle retention with different meal uh, meal timing with the protein. Uh, but generally speaking, um, fasting doesn't seem to be more effective for muscle retention, but it doesn't seem to be notably worse uh, if you're following those general principles of enough protein per day, uh, 
I would say an eight hour feeding window so far looks a little, a little bit more favorable than a four hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other methodological differences with those studies that you, you can't necessarily say it's just the time of the feeding window. But generally speaking, if you want to, to err on the safe side and use some kind of intermittent fasting strategy and you're resistance trained, I would say that the way to go would probably be an eight hour feeding window. Make sure you have plenty of protein each day and don't train in the fasted state. And I think that would be just as good as a more traditional meal pattern. Yeah, I mean, I I think the key here is really that the dose makes the poison. Yeah. Um, I, I think that a lot of people have a tendency to look at things in a, in a binary way. Either, you know, you have a traditional, like, 16-hour feeding window, or you're doing some sort of fasting. And clearly there's some point that you can reach at which fasting can become deleterious. So... Eight-hour feeding window seems to be fine. Four hours, maybe fine, maybe a little worse. If you took it to the extreme and you just eat 6,000 calories in one meal every three days, I don't think anyone would expect that that is just as good as a traditional feeding pattern. Right. So, you know, at, at some point it can become too much, but up to that point it seems to be just as good. And eight hours in eight hour feeding window seems to be within that range where you're not fasting so much that it becomes deleterious. Yeah. The one thing, you know, it asked is fasting more effective. Um, I I think we've kind of explained where fasting would successfully fit into, to kind of a, a feeding strategy or feeding schedule. But, uh, one thing I would note is one of the benefits of having kind of a time restricted feeding window, uh, the, the literature many times has shown a benefit in terms of satiety. So if you're on a calorie restricted diet and you're struggling to deal with hunger, um, it, it's always very subjective. You, you want to play around with it a little bit, but a lot of people do notice that when they restrict their feeding window, uh, it, it makes a low calorie diet a lot more bearable, a lot more tolerable in terms mm-hmm. of their hunger and their desire to eat, which are two different things. <laughs> I think a lot of people forget that. Like, even if it didn't help your physiological true hunger, a lot of people find it to be really beneficial to just mentally take a break and say, I know I'm not eating for a while and I'm cool with that. Yeah, I, I think I think people underestimate the effect the benefits that hard rules and restrictions can have for some people. I mean, I I think that's the exact same thing as the old like bodybuilder adage of don't eat carbs after 6 PM. Yeah. Like there's nothing magical about avoiding carbs after 6 PM, but like most delicious things have carbs in them. If you're trying to restrict calorie intake, you know, having a hard cutoff at some point in the night for when you eat delicious foods is probably going to cause you to eat fewer delicious foods and naturally decrease your calorie intake. Definitely. Now, it's time for the most important question of the night. Okay, so this is a question a lot of people have been asking. The The fitness world is kind of going crazy wanting answers about this, so we figured we would set aside some time and just air it out and tell everybody everything they want to know. So the question is for Greg and it's really a, a collection of questions. It, I mean, we're getting them from all, from all sides these days. People want to know, Greg, the ice cream that people see on Instagram. <laughs> uh, for people that don't know, Stronger by Science is a family. 
we have dinners every weekend. I always come over and bring a bunch of terrible food and Greg makes a bunch of great food and, and it works for everybody. But lately he's been making his own ice cream, posting it on Instagram. And I promise you as a person who has tried all of it, it is incredible. So Greg, help the people out. What? How do you make the ice cream taste so damn good? Yeah, so um, ice cream. Ice cream is hard to make bad, right? So you're, you have something with high fat content and high sugar content. Unless you do something really stupid, it's probably going to be delicious. So really, we're talking less about how to make an acceptable homemade ice cream and more about how to kind of take it to the next level and make it a truly exceptional dessert that you can make for friends. And on that note, our friends that came over, um, they have family that owns a custard shop. Yes. And they were like, I, th- I think they were pretty blown away by, by the uh, highly competitive nature of your ice cream versus the custard shop custard. I'll take it. Um, but yeah, so, so really the main thing you need to be worried about with homemade ice cream is texture. Because taste is going to be good. It's cream and it's sugar, and then as long as you don't fuck up the flavorings, like, taste is fine. Texture is really what separates a good ice cream from a bad ice cream, and texture is really hard to get right for a homemade ice cream. Um, People who make it professionally, especially people who mass manufacture it, have a lot of industrial stabilizers that they will put in, um, which helps the ice cream not fuck up during shipping, Um, so, you know, I don't think that's a bad thing, but like typically they're going to be using stuff that home cooks either won't have access to or won't have easy access to. Um, and also the machinery you use can make a difference as well. So apparently for the perfect ice cream texture, um, that largely depends on how fast you whip the ice cream that determines how much air you can get into it so um, there are consumer devices that cost I I think in excess of a thousand bucks if not it's at least a few hundred bucks where you can control like the speed the paddles turn Um, but that that's probably not something that an amateur ice cream maker is going to invest in and I know that the top of the line is I believe called a Paco jet and what you what you do with that is instead of you know putting the cream mixture within a bowl and then you spin around and it freezes as as the thing turns you actually just freeze the mixture solid and then it has a blade with an ass load of horsepower behind it that beats the already frozen cream mixture um, which helps break up any ice crystals that have formed within the mixture and so you get like a super, super smooth, decadent ice cream from that. But anyway, um, you're probably not going to have access to any of that stuff as a home cook. So your main, the main struggle you have is texture. So there's a couple ways to make ice cream that's going to have an appealing texture and that's going to keep well in your freezer. The name of the game is you're trying to have a bunch of little ice crystals instead of a few large ice crystals. The way to get a bunch of tiny ice crystals is basically to emulsify the mixture as well as possible. 
and to have as many things that are going to absorb water uh, as possible so there's not just a bunch of extra water floating around that can form those large ice crystals. So there's two ways you can approach that. One is with um, emulsifiers, and so here we're talking egg yolks. Um, I think your best bet for homemade ice cream that's going to keep in your freezer for a long time is to go frozen custard style with egg yolks in it, and then also um, to add stabilizers that you will have access to. So here I'm thinking xanthan gum, skim milk powder, and cornstarch. Um, the protein content in the milk powder uh, and just... I'm not totally sure how xanthan gum works. I'm not going to try to bullshit an explanation. And then with cornstarch, per unit of volume, it just absorbs an ass load of water to help keep there from being free water in the mixture that can float around and form large ice crystals. So here's how you make a super, super good homemade ice cream base. You start with a pint of cream and a cup of milk. You put that on the stove over medium-low heat. You go ahead and throw in a quarter teaspoon of xanthan gum. You can probably find that at most stores. It's pretty common now. A lot of vegans use xanthan gum as an egg substitute. So as more stores have become, uh, have started catering to, the, to a vegan lifestyle, xanthan gum has become more ubiquitous. You're, you're giving me a face. They just eat plain xanthan gum as a... No, 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 no. Like, not as, like, scrambled eggs. But if you're... Oh. Like, if, if like, a brownie <laughs> recipe calls for an egg, okay. you would use xanthan gum. I was like, dude, that, that is a bridge too far. You no, no, no. have yeah. gone... <laughs> I, yes, I, I understand that face now. Um, so, so xanthan gum um, is more forgiving than a lot of... Uh, uh, other stabilizers, which is why I go with that. Um, so you're going to throw it in the milk and cream mixture as it's coming up to temperature. Make sure you whisk it in really well so it fully dissolves. Um, and you just keep that over medium-low heat. Keep an eye on the temperature. Eventually, you want that to get up to 180 degrees Fahrenheit, which is some number of degrees Celsius. That's part of the metric system that I can't do conversions with super quickly yet. Um, so 180 degrees Fahrenheit, that's what you're aiming for. While that's coming up to temperature, what you want to do is crack some eggs, get eight, eight egg yolks. You can save the whites for whatever you would want to use egg whites for. Scrambled egg whites, egg white omelets. Want to make some meringues, go for that. You can throw them out, but if you're trying to reduce food waste, there are plenty of other things you can use the whites for. We just need the yolks. You're going to get eight egg yolks. To that, you're going to add between three quarters of a cup to one cup of sugar, depending how sweet you want your ice cream. Um, and you're also going to add two tablespoons of skim milk powder for the protein content and one tablespoon of cornstarch. You're going to want to whip that mixture up really well. You can use a hand whisk uh, or you can use a whisk, but a hand blender is probably going to be a lot quicker and more efficient. And you just want to get that mixture until it's relatively thin and ribbony. Um, so once that's whipped up, then you're just tending the milk and cream mixture until it gets up to 180 degrees Fahrenheit. When it gets to that temperature, you're going to ladle out about a cup of that mixture into your egg mixture. And as you pour it in, you whisk it in very quickly and very well. 
repeat the process a couple times. That will um, help your yolks get up to temperature gradually. It's not going to shock them so you don't wind up with scrambled eggs. Once you've whisked a couple cups of the milk and cream mixture into your eggs, you pour that back into the pot where everything is simmering and you let that mixture get up to 170 degrees Fahrenheit, stirring constantly. That's going to be hot enough to make sure the eggs get fully integrated into the mixture, but it's going to be cool enough that it doesn't cook the egg yolks. Again, you don't want to wind up with scrambled eggs. Um, so once it hits 170 degrees Fahrenheit, then you pour it into whatever container you're going to make the ice cream in, uh, like the I don't know, like jug thing on the ice cream maker itself. Pour it through a fine mesh sieve so you can filter out any, like, you know, if there's a chunk of uh, cornstarch still in it or if some of the eggs did scramble a little bit, it's going to strain those things out. Just make sure you have a nice, silky, creamy uh, ice cream base left. And then you churn it the next day. So that's for just plain ice cream that's just milk and sugar. On top of that, you can add any sort of flavorings you want. So I've done plain vanilla, I've done cookies and cream, I've done pistachio, I've done, ooh, salted caramel. That was the best that's, one. That's the yeah. most recent. That was really good. So for the salted caramel, instead of mixing the sugar in with the eggs, instead I turned the sugar into caramel sauce and used that instead of like adding additional sugar. Um but yeah, I mean, really, w once you have the base down, the world is your oyster. Um, whatever you're using for flavoring, throw that into the milk and cream mixture as it's coming up to temperature. The longer it's in the hot liquid, the more it's going to steep, the more it's going to impart its flavor into your ice cream. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, the base is the key. If you can get a good ice cream base, you can make some good fucking ice cream. Um and between the emulsification from the eggs, the stabilization from the xanthan gum, uh, stabilization from the protein and the skim milk powder, and just the sheer water absorption capability from the cornstarch, you're going to wind up with a very thick, luscious, creamy ice cream that, unlike most homemade ice creams, keeps super well in the fridge. Um, and yeah, it's good stuff. All right, and so for, for next week's episode, I am going to do a deep dive into shredded chicken, I think. <laughs> really get into the details about how to make it in the crock pot, different kind of vegetables and sauces you can eat with it. So um, we'll clear out some space for that next week. I think that does it for this week's Q&A episode. Um, I, guess, I guess food questions are on the table now. Um, I don't really get it. I feel like shredded chicken's fine. <laughs> like, I, but I mean, if people like it, then people like it. But uh, as always, if you have questions that you want answered about training volume or creatine or how to cook stuff, uh, you can always send us those questions on social media. The links to all those different social media threads will be provided in the description of this episode. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, 
Visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.